Well, welcome to the 29th episode of Ideas and Lives, uh, a series that highlights people with compelling ideas and interesting lives. And certainly we have someone of, that uh, meets those criteria today, uh, Don Ezra, who uh, is a good friend of Tzvi Bodhi's, my co-host, and Tzvi, take it away. Okay, well, welcome uh, to Don. Uh, Don is no stranger to uh, podcasts and webcasts. And in fact, Don has a uh, blog of his own, which he'll tell you about later. Uh, and uh, we met but because we were at a conference together, I think. Don is a uh, celebrated, well-known thought leader in the pension field. Uh, and he'll tell you more about that as we go along, because I want him to talk. You don't want to hear me. Uh, so, Don, tell us about your upbringing, the things that shaped your thinking, and your entrepreneurial instincts. Okay, well, start at the start. I'm, I'm from a Baghdadi Jewish family the first generation of which, actually a man named Shalom Cohen, uh, moved to Calcutta 200 years ago. Actually, Shalom Cohen was from Aleppo, not that it matters, but most, most were from, from Baghdad. He was a trader. And over the subsequent generations, there was a huge amount of intermarriage in the community. I mean, right down to my parents, who were first cousins. And actually, this gives me an excuse. I have some extreme uh, tendencies and this allows me to say, not my fault, it's the genetic concentration, nothing I could do. <laughs> <laughs> um, my family was not at all religious, but the culture, the Jewish culture was strong, the discipline of continuous learning, good behavior, all that sort of thing. Um, as, as a child, I actually had severe asthma and um, to control it, I was sent to boarding school nine months a year in the foothills of the Himalayas until I was 10 years old. So that's when, that's when my memories really start and everything in life that I experience is seen through the eyes of that 10 year old in Calcutta. And he- Did you, he, did he you overcome, did you overcome asthma? Yes, yes. Unfortunately, I've passed it down to, to my son, but th th there it is. I've, I, it's been much, it hasn't been nearly as bad for me. But the, this 10-year-old this kid would not have believed how much good luck would come to him. I, I, I count myself as one of, one of the luckiest people on earth. And the, the first stroke of luck in, in, in that sense was that as a Jewish kid in a country dominated by Hindus and Muslims, I was educated by Belgian Jesuits. <laughs> you know, not, not to add to the religious confusion, but because it was the best education available. And in fact, um, a group of, of classmates met again in Calcutta, which is the first time I'd been there in over 60 years, a few years ago. And we'd been all over the world. We all agreed that our school experience was the best education we had ever come across in our lives. And we, we'd been to Cambridge University, MIT, prestigious places like that. And Were we they thought, all Jews? Oh, no, no. In fact, um, our class had 45 students and they included Catholics, Protestants, Hindus, Muslims, Parsis, Sikhs, and one Jew. So se seven religions, at least, among wow. 
45 people, but it didn't bother us at all. We were kids together. That was an aspect in the background that didn't interfere with friendship. And, and, and the school and its affiliated college um, were really diverse and tolerant. Were the so teachers the, the, superb or why, why was the- The teachers were superb. They oh. were absolutely superb. And in addition to that, it was the, 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 the background, what, what the Jesuits really did for me was not just the education, was, but they, they, they encouraged my natural curiosity in a very disciplined way. They said, don't take anything for granted, keep probing until you understand it. It was that kind of thing. And that appealed to me enormously. And you know, over the years, this sort of digging deeper and deeper proved to be an asset in my career because through my career, very often I would get to one or two levels further by saying, well, why is that? Why is that? And other people seem to stop before I did. And really, that's what kids do, right? But we yeah, kind of well, drum it out of them. <laughs> yes. And, and no one drummed it at me. And my family still thinks I go too deep and just stop, 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 dad, etc. Anyway, I, I, I what, I how far did you, how, what grade did you go? How far did you go in that school? Well, I, I finished schooling, uh, which was the, uh, the Cambridge overseas stuff. And then because I was 15 years old, no university would have me other than Calcutta University. I was 15 when I finished because in the early years, I was a very disruptive kid and they just kept pushing me up to see things. <laughs> I looked at and, and, and so um, I, I graduated from Calcutta University in mathematics when I was 18. Um, wow. That, that was followed by, by Trinity College, Cambridge, mathematics and economics. And actually, the, the, the one year of economics was a real joy because it was supervised by a guy named Jim Murleys, who subsequently oh. won the Nobel Prize. And right. one, one of the nicest things anyone has ever said to me was from Jim when he suggested that I might do well to do postgraduate work in economics at Trinity. But I, you know, that, that, that was a great compliment, but no, I, I had to find a job. There was absolutely no money. We'd exhaust, we'd exhausted all the family finances, just getting me that far. So. Did you have siblings that had, I had, I had one younger brother and he, he never, he never went to university. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, is the family still, is there still family in India? Uh, there's, at its peak, I think the Jewish population in Calcutta was about 4,000 after all the Europeans came in during the Second World War. Today in Calcutta, I doubt that there's, a, there's even two dozen left. Mm. There's certainly not enough for a minyan at, 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 at yeah. the synagogue and stuff like that. And have you, did you maintain contact with Jim Murley's or? No, I didn't. I didn't, no. I, I, I seem to move from one room to another logical room to another <laughs> logical room. Um, each, each room, if life was a series of rooms, each of the rooms I was in was logically connected to the one before. But if you go up and trace a path through all of them, there is absolutely no logic to that whatsoever. <laughs> pure accident, pure luck. I mean, so we're ready, when did, we're when ready did, for the next step. Okay. <laughs> all right. The next step, well, I, I guess that's the career. And the thing is, when I, when I graduated from Trinity, I hadn't a clue what I wanted to do. I had no idea. I had no leanings in any direction. So I did what others like me did. We went to uh, the University Appointments Board, which is a very grand name for a, for a group that did career advice and so on. 
And the guy said, mm, okay, mathematics and economics. Hmm, ever heard about actuaries? Stroke of luck. Yes, I said, my mother told me she once dated one. <laughs> I said, I only have one question. If, it, if it's logical to be an actuary after mathematics and economics, how does it pay? And he said, there's just been a report of a royal commission on the remuneration of the professions and the highest paid professions are doctors and actuaries. Done. Sign me up. So they arranged some interviews for me. I, I got some job offers and I became an actuarial student at the Commercial Union Assurance Company in, in London. Um, more, more luck followed. I'll, 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 when you, I'll when you say stories. student, you were, you were a student and a worker? Yes, as an actuary, you're called, your position is called actuarial student, but you're, you're a full-time employee. Okay. okay, sounds like apprenticeship to me. <laughs> yes, yes, it is exactly like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a couple of years later, um, another coincidence and a stroke of good luck, um, I, I moved from commercial union to the imperial life of Canada. And then more good luck. They were astonished that these guys in the UK were, were hiring actuaries. So what on earth are you guys doing? Send one to us so we can take a look at the guy. So they sent me there uh, for a couple of months, got on really well. Everything was great. And when I went back, I thought, I really love that. I wish I could go for longer. So I started a, a, an implicit campaign to send me there again. And something came up, details not important. And they said, you know, both sides trust Don. I was, I was like 25, 26 at the time. Let's send him there and he can help us resolve some differences we have with the head office. Well, you know, I was there for the best part of a year. I totally fell in love with Toronto. I totally fell in love with a young lady who was spending a gap year between school and university and was at Imperial Life. And so in the course of that year, um, we got engaged. I mean, I, I, I still wonder what she saw in me. The only thing <laughs> she's been able to clarify is you were just so totally different. I'd never experienced anyone like you. But was, she, was she Canadian? Yes, yes. Uh, she, she, she brought a, a Scots Presbyterian genetic background into our marriage. Thank God for that. Thank God the kids have, have got so much of her in there. It, it sort of reduces the concentration by, by 50%. And as, as, as another stroke of luck, um, her family turned out to be the best in-laws anyone could ever have. And oh, late, late, later this year, we're going to celebrate our 50th anniversary. Although... It's, it's my 50th anniversary. It's not really Susan's because she's not old enough to have been married 50 years. So she claims. Technically anyway. speaking. Yes. Yeah. Just sort of continuing here. I'll go back to the career in a minute. We have, yeah. we have two, two wonderful kids, David and Catherine. And as I say, thank God they both, they both have so much of their mother in them. Um, even though to the rest of the world, it's their similarity to my extreme characteristics that I noticed first, you know, aspects like linearity of thinking, logic. I mean, I, I am extreme. I can only proceed from one point to another logical point and very slowly. It, it, it's, it's absolutely awful. Do they keep asking why like you? Um, yes, they, they, they tend to a little bit. But they have they have their mother's empathy and that makes them real human Dolphins beings. Dolphins are just automatons. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, okay, so 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 back back to the career. I had some some happy years with Imperial Life. Then I moved from there to pension consulting in Canada. Tell, tell us a little bit about what the job was. What did you actually at Imperial? Oh, yeah, I, I had just qualified as an actuary, and I was put in underwriting, and then they moved me to the pensions department and stuff like that. It was mm -hmm. just standard routine stuff. But I was I was approached by a pension consultant and ended up joining the pension consultant. And that ended up doing some asset consulting and stuff like that. And then, then I went out on my own for several years, five, six, seven years, um, until, skipping forward, until I was approaching a serious round number, age 40. And all my personal business failures um, pretty much impelled me to do something a bit more stable. At more luck, another amazing coincidence, two things happened to two different people on the same day. And that ended up with me being introduced to Russell Investments. And um, I went to Tacoma, Washington, where, where they had their headquarters, chatted with them for one day. And at the end of that day, we shook hands on an agreement. And that was it. And three of us started Russell Canada uh, when I was days short of my 40th birthday, September 1984. And, and what was what Russell said, Canada supposed to do? Oh, we were just starting it up. Continue, continue the work of, of Russell um, US, which was that the, there, were, there were clients around the world and they had no one to deal with the Canadian subsidiaries of you know, GM, IBM, AT&T, clients like that. Helping so, them oh, with asking, what, is, what does Russell do? Oh, um, Russell at that time was primarily a, a pension investment consulting firm. After that, they went into what these days is called OCIO, Outsourced Chief Investment Officer. So they, 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 they create a whole bunch of funds and they choose managers. And so that, but, but the consulting is what they were best known for with, with the 40 client limit that included all the big names and stuff like that. And was that so, mainly to deal with uh, defined benefit pensions? Yes, yes. So this was, this was in, the, in the early 80s, 84, 85. And DB was hugely predominant. I, I came into DC later on, but but most of my 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 early life was all was all was all DB. DC, by the way, is defined contribution and not District of Columbia. Oh, good point. <laughs> yes, thank you, thank you. So what I hadn't realized, why the guys at Russell had heard of me, was that along the way, while I was doing my own thing, I had taken to attending meetings of investment-oriented groups like the Q Group, the, the Institute for Quantitative Research in Finance. And I never realized that all my writings on investment subjects got my name around. And I, I'd written a book on pension fund finance and investment. I wrote another one on how, I mean, this is, this is trivial today, but at the time it was new, how the valuation status of pension funds depended so much on the actuarial assumptions that were made. And in fact, my business partner, Keith Ambikshire, and I made a presentation to Q about it, and we were given an award for it by a prize committee that was chaired by Bill Sharp. And that's how I came to know Bill. Uh, you know, but, but let, wait a minute. So you, you seem to have skipped something. Yeah. Uh, how did you decide to write these books? And when did you decide to write the oh, books? Because was that it, while you were on your own? That was while I was on my own. Yes. Because along the way, I was in my pension consulting, I was dealing far more with the investment side, and with the actuarial side, that, that, that they could do their own thing. And so I was attending all these investment conferences. And the 
the relationship of liabilities to assets was totally new. It, it, this, this was another element of, of, of my luck. I was the first actuary ever hired by Russell. Hmm. And, and at that time in DB plans, the two sides were separate and the connection between them was that the actuaries gave the investment people a required rate of return and all the investment stuff, how do we make the required rate of return? What's the risk involved, et cetera, et cetera. But it had, they had no idea about the liabilities. And, and, and here I was able to talk to these big plans about linking the assets and liabilities and how much they had in common, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It, now, it, yeah. how did you uh, hook up with Keith Ambach? Oh, we, we were partners in one of the, one of the businesses that didn't work in, in my seven years doing my you own. You met him in Toronto. Just... Met him in Toronto more in, in, in the seventies. I mean, he's, we're, we're both in our very late seventies and we've known each other more than half our lives. And we, 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 were, we were first people who knew each other working in the same field. Then we were colleagues. Later on, I'll, I'll, I'll come to that. We wrote a book together, et cetera. Et cetera. And, and we're still, deep friends um but but the, the the thing about about being an actuary at russell was that all these actuarial ideas that involved how the how the liabilities interacted with the assets were totally new to my colleagues and so they loved it because they they, they were good guys and and one of them said one day you know why are you why are you explaining these things to, to us one at a time as they occur? Why don't you just tell us about the whole actuarial perspective on stuff? And then we won't have to keep reinventing the wheel. Okay, I said, because I, I, I knew them reasonably well. I said, next time I was in Toronto and I was in Tacoma once a month. I said, the next time I'm in Tacoma, let's do a lunch session. And I advertised it as, this is Don talking about sex and actuarial principles because I, I knew the guys a little bit by then and so a big crowd came and I, I, I put up slide one topic sex and actuarial principles and the next slide came up today's topic part two actuarial principles <laughs> I'm so sorry you missed part one boo, boo, boo. but it was a good session and it, it achieved what it was meant to but I was so pleased with what I'd done that when I went back to Toronto I, I, I told Susan my wife about this and she said wait wait what did they miss you talking about sex they missed nothing <laughs> and, and, and anyway um, the, the, the other interesting thing that happened, another lucky coincidence, uh, shortly after I joined uh, Russell, was that Bill Sharp wanted to know much more about how pension funds operated. So where would you find the biggest and best pension funds? You'd go to the Russell guys because they are the clients there. Um, so he approached George for access to some of the biggest ones. And he formed a company that he called Sharp Russell Research. And George named me as the guy from Russell who should work with Bill. I was the kind of ambassador representative to the group. And that's how I got to work with Bill for a couple of years. Now, again, to, to, to you, this is natural stuff. This is your natural environment. To someone like me, working with Bill was an absolute thrill. This is before he, he, he was awarded his Nobel Prize. But I, I, I got a complete education from him. It was absolutely wonderful. I'm in touch with him on a regular basis, by the way. I, oh, yeah. I tell him that, that we interviewed you today. 
Yeah, okay. Well, there was one thing that Bill got from me. It was one of the most trivial things you can imagine, but since it's the only thing I can remember, I'll, I'll mention it to you. He was he, he always wrote a lot of code for, for a whole bunch of things. Yeah, yeah, right. Was, was, was all involved with writing code. And along the way, he, he had this transition matrix that he constructed of um, survival probabilities for people aged X coming in here and coming out age Y and depending on what X and Y were, the, the matrix. And I told him, oh, that's too complicated. You don't need a matrix. You just need a vector. Individual one-year survival probabilities, all the other numbers in your matrix are all derived from the the, the, the vector in the middle. And that's yeah. the only thing Bill ever got from me. And I'm guessing <laughs> it may have caused him to change two lines of code. But <laughs> well, he's still he's still working on that now. That's what yeah. he that's how he spends his his days is working on uh, retirement annuities. Yeah. The mortality tables are key. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, let, let, let me come back to the mortality thing later. One, one, one more story about Bill. Um, Bill was at a Q group meeting and I was there too on the day the Nobel Prize was awarded to him. Oh, and oh. So there, there we all were. So we wanted to, want to hear from Bill. What happened? What happened? Tell us more about this. And he told all of us about the series of telephone calls that took place for the Nobel Committee to track him down at the right. Q group meeting, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, again, to you, this kind of thing happens to me. Mm. I, I just Not every day. thinking of myself <laughs> as the 10-year-old in Calcutta. I mean, <laughs> this kind of experience, I, 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 I couldn't imagine it. Right. Anyway, so so back back to back to Russell. And so I'm, I'm I'm working with the clients, doing all this stuff, and I'm traveling all over the place. So after a few years, I moved the family, wife and two kids, to Tacoma, um, to the head office, if only to travel less. Well, t turned out the travel increased <laughs> rather than decreasing <laughs> because because that it, it wasn't that long after that I was made head of U.S. consulting, and then that among the things I did was um, the US client conferences and the topics and all that. And then the guys in the, in, in the UK and Canada and Australia said, well, we need to do this too. And so I started traveling around the world. I mean, and, and, and this is why later on I became co-chair of global consulting. And it, it, it's also why I was able to do the Sydney Harbour bridge climb 10 times over the years. It's just- a, So you've been to Australia many times. Many, many times. Ten, ten, ten of those times I did the bridge climb. I must have been 15 or 20 times. Yeah. Um, but anyway. And this was, uh, let me just get a little more on the, the yeah. content of the consulting. So this is all related to how to do uh, defined benefit programs well? Yes, essentially essentially. Along the way, that expanded to endowments and foundations and stuff like that. And then later on, they, they started a retail arm where could you could we apply any of these principles? And I was lucky enough to actually uh, become friends with some of the guys on the retail side. And, and so whatever ideas we could take about longevity and investment and putting the stuff together uh, turned out to be useful. But along the way, while I was doing all this stuff, um, so I was now in Tacoma and Keith um, was in Toronto and he got the idea of uh, writing a book. And well, I mean, both of us were into writing books. I mean, this, this, yeah. this, this is just natural. Um, as, as far as I'm concerned, I write to explain things to myself. Um, mm -hmm. 
write, writing, writing is so much stricter discipline, so much more logical, so much slower than thinking that I don't really understand anything unless I've written it down. And I write to myself. So I, I, I write with I and you and I am both people. I am the person instructing and I am the person listening and I've got to explain it to myself. So now did you ever did you ever have like Keith has a newsletter and a subscription service? Yes. Did you do that too? No. No, I no. was still I was still at Russell. I didn't stop that till after I graduated from full-time work. I, I don't like the expression or the concept of retirement, but that 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 came later. Oh, that's right. When, when Keith wanted to do his book, um, he just he just couldn't stop. And so he, he approached me and said, I'm hoping you'll be willing to do this with me because there are not many people I'd really care to write something with. And so I said, <laughs> yes, please. Um, and together we, we wrote a book that we call Pension Fund Excellence. Um, and to this day, I hear it cited at conferences. And most of, most of what they're talking about is governance, which is, which is sort of not, not running a business, but how you, how you um, organize it, seeing that it's run properly. So who does what and how you set up structures and stuff like that. And so- Now, yeah, now with all, with that, all, all of that, stuff, yeah. With all of that kind of uh, involvement in the d defined benefit programs, um, you know, one of the big things that's happened over the years, first of all, there was, at least in the U.S., a good deal of regulation. <clears throat> and then um, subsequently, uh, some awkward elements where uh, if you weren't funding the program enough, that, that people were upset. And if you uh, funded it too much, then you might be a target of uh, takeovers and all these things that were starting to happen to DB funds. Uh, what was your perspective on all that as it was happening? Just that people really didn't understand the dynamics of it. They didn't understand the relationship between assets and liabilities and, and funding, the evolution, of, the evolution of the liabilities over time and the pace at which you needed to fund it. Um, very few were overfunded. Most of them were underfunded because the less you could put in, the better things looked. And la la later on, the accountants got involved and, and, and said, you, you, the, the amount you fund and the amount you expense don't have to be the same thing. But in the early years, you expensed what you funded. So you tended generally to underfund unless the actuaries were overvaluing the liabilities by using, God, who would believe this th these days, by using interest rates that were lower than you could lock in with government bonds. That's, that's what happened. That's why uh, I, 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 I did my paper and my book on how results varied depending on what you did with the assumptions and what the assumptions were based on, stuff like that. This was did all, you, did, this is did all you have any today, but in the 80s, this was new stuff. Did you have any experience with uh, state uh, government? Uh, and we, had, we had some, but it was mostly private sector. We worked with some of the state funds, yeah, yeah. It, it was, correct me if I'm wrong, but I interpret the, the switch from the, five, the decline of defined benefit plans in all but uh, the public sector. Mm -hmm. uh, I attributed it to the disinflation 
that occurred in the 80s. Because in an inflationary environment, a defined benefit plan is very affordable. Yes. Because the benefits after retirement are not indexed for inflation. In, at least in the U.S. In the U.K., yes. changed the, the rules. But in the U.S., it became pretty cheap in the 70s with high interest rates, uh, nominal interest rates because of inflation, and the fact that the benefits were not indexed once people reached retirement. And yeah, you're so spot on. affordable. You are absolutely spot on. And that, that's why actuaries used to value at something less than the current exactly. year as, exactly. as, as a margin of caution when things came down. But right. they came down so much, exactly as you say, the disinflation, right. that people realized that e- even, even non-indexed pensions were still very, very expensive. Oh, yeah, of course. Then it yes. became unaffordable, essentially. Yeah, and absolutely. the complaint of corporations was the employees don't value the benefits as much as they cost the corporation. Yes. In many cases, even the employees welcomed defined contribution all of a sudden. They could see the money that was going into the plan, et cetera. So everybody kind of agreed in the private sector, except for the unions. The unions were not happy about that. That's right. Yeah, I, you, you are absolutely spot on. I agree totally with, with, with all yeah. of them. Yeah, yeah. And this is because um, when you um, have these long-term liabilities, uh, you have to have assets that are growing uh, at least enough to meet them. And if the risk-free interest rates are quite low, then you have to save a lot of money uh, to have it get up to the point where it will achieve that. And then, um, and what about longevity, the, the increase in longevity? That's of course an actuarial element. But. Yes, that had, that had it, it, the impact was much less obvious because actuaries with, with their caution added a little bit anyway. And, yeah. and so that, that had much less of an impact. No one could see that in a sense, but you could see the interest rate environment uh, very, very, very clearly. Yeah, yeah. So does Russell still, uh, I mean, if, if, if we see a huge decline in defined benefit programs, presumably we, we could see a decline in the need for consulting for defined benefit programs. Well, so, it's, not, it's not only that, it's just that we, we were paid as consultants um, on a dollar basis, as opposed to a basis point basis. Mm-hmm. And so that's where, that's where um, the business started to be dominated over the years by the uh, asset management side of it, or at least the, the OCIO mm-hmm. side of it. The, the assets weren't managed directly internally, but th- that side of it totally dominates the business. I don't know quite what's happening these days, but I wouldn't be surprised if in fact, consulting was just thrown in automatically as, 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 as a feature of what you do when you put your assets with Russell. And, and Russell got into the business of measuring investment performance. There are Russell indexes. Yes. 
yes. And, and, and there the, are the huge stories about how measurement was based on the numbers that were submitted and, and whether it was the, um, uh, the, the, the managers who were submitting the numbers or whether it was the custodian, you got different numbers. So Russell had to set up another department to actually accurately do that. Then they started measuring it. And then people like Kelly Houghton internally, I mean, there, there were some brilliant people in, in, in house, but Kelly was one of the guys who was looking at, at manager performance against benchmarks and seeing people were beating the S&P 500. How were they doing that? By investing outside it, by investing in smaller caps, et cetera. And so the, out of that, eventually came the idea of the Russell 3000, Russell 1000 as more representative even of the large cap than the 500 and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A whole bunch of that stuff. I wonder how that bit, stands today. How pop, I wonder how popular the Russell indexes are today. They're, they're pretty popular. They're pretty popular. I, I, I see them cited all the time. Um, they're, they're, they're the most comprehensive set because you can divide them up in so many different ways. Whereas right. the S&P 500, NASDAQ, et cetera, these are all one-liners. Yeah. So when you were doing your defined benefit consulting, and now I'm thinking of some of the grossly underfunded state pension programs. Yeah. I mean, you're a charming man. Um, could you bring that charm to people to tell them the bad news that they had to uh, fund more if they wanted to keep this, no. this type of program? No, because funding was only, I, I had to bring funding into the discussion. It was, an, it was investment consulting. Funding was the actuarial side. Funding and benefits went together. Investing was separate. So I could bring funding in to say there are two sources of of increasing the money, one is putting them in, the other is the investment Grow. return. And, and in fact, this is what you have to do. In fact, uh, let, 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 let me come back to that idea about the, um, the extent to which funding provides growth and the magic of compound interest and all that kind of thing in talking about DC, um, which, which is probably a good thing now because that's as, that's as much as I did on DB. Um, I, was, I was head of US consulting and I told Mike Phillips who took over as CEO from George Russell, I was confident enough in the culture of the company that I could be honest with Mike and tell him, I hate management. I'm not good at this. I cannot stand this. And if you think that this is the one, because he said, this is the one area I don't have to worry about. I don't lose any sleep over. So that's because my deputy Gloria is running it. <laughs> running it. Said, but the clients love working with you. I said, oh, I can keep working with them. I just don't want to do this. What would you rather do? I would rather, I prefer learning and teaching. Preferably, by the way, Mike, in that order, because you have occasionally asked me to teach before I've learned, which is a very embarrassing <laughs> kind of thing. So anyway, he, he got me then, waving the flag, essentially, at this stage, I was well enough known everywhere, waving the flag in the different countries and, 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 and stuff like that. And so um, that, was, that was one big change. And the other is that um, I, I then started working a bit with Dallas Salisbury, someone else you've, you've, you've interviewed and whom I've known for many, many, many years at the Employee Benefit Research Institute. And then in 2004, um, I, I, I shared the award they have um, for extraordinary lifetime contributions to American economic security. I still remember the phrase. I loved it. <laughs> I was so proud of it. So, it's a mouthful. I, and then right after that, 
I mean, this was so cunning on Dallas's part. Right after that, he said, um, would you chair our research committee? Well, how can you say no? <laughs> so I, I did that, but working with Jack Vanderhei and others like that, I mean, this got me involved with DC, with individual savings, et cetera, et cetera. And so as DC was expanding, I naturally had a way, I, I found by luck that, 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 that I was involved in the, in the area. So of course I wanted to write a book about it. And, and I got two Russell colleagues as co-authors and, and we, we wrote something we called, or at least the publisher chose to call the retirement plan solution, the reinvention of defined contribution. And this, this is where the funding bit comes in because the one idea that people still recall from that book. The only idea people recall from that book is something that we call 103060. And this was a very simple thing. You know, if well, whether it's a defined benefit or a defined contribution plan, right. if you're doing a set of, of projections, it looks the same. It doesn't matter what's guaranteed and what isn't. It the numbers are the same. So I did projections for here's a here's a hypothetical person age 25 coming in, contributing to age 65, a constant percentage with an increasing salary. Um, and then from 65 to let's call it 90, decumulating, we didn't use the word at the time, just withdrawing money. Um, and all with some middling investment return. And if you did this, the relative size of the numbers in the spreadsheet, when you looked at the columns, the relative sizes were interesting because it turned out that roughly every dollar that you withdrew consisted of 10 cents that you'd originally contributed, 30 cents of investment return during the accumulation period and 60 cents of investment return during the drawdown period, the decumulation. Oh, wow. And this was absolutely, so two stunning conclusions. One was this actually showed the power of compound interest because people hadn't realized that, you know, you, you put money and then suddenly it grows 10 times by the time you're 90. And, and the other that was that the investment job wasn't even half done when you'd retired. The, the post-retirement bit was, at least as important, probably more important than the than the, uh, mm. uh, the pre-retirement bit. Now, of course, today, and that that was in the early days. Again, you do this elementary stuff, and later on, you say, "Oh, you could polish this up in so many ways." And today, what we would say is, for God's sake, I mean, all those nominal dollars are the same—a dollar at age twenty-five and a dollar at age ninety. You're counting them both as the same. Oh, come on, do this in real inflation-adjusted terms. So, someone did that. Uh, a few years ago, and wrote to me and said, you know what your 10, 30, 60 looks like? No. Tell me. Two, three, four. Those are the relative sizes. And so they're much smaller numbers uh, relative to each other. But two conclusions still hold. One is there is there is still some power of compound interest. And the other is that the investment side after you retire is at least as important as the investment side in accumulation. And so that's that's the only idea people ever really got. And it, it's it's the closest I've come to. I mean, it's not even original thinking. It's just accidental. When you're used to projecting things for for, for DB, you do this for DC as well. And and, and, and there it is. But but you asked one, 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 one other thing you mentioned was um, longevity. And this is possibly the only reasonably original work I've ever done. Uh, Bill Sharp calls decumulation the nastiest, hardest problem in finance, because you're combining two huge sources of uncertainty, um, longevity uncertainty and investment return uncertainty. Well, 
absolutely true. Do I know how to solve this? Hell no. But, but what my linear logical mind did was to say, okay, you've got two sources of uncertainty. I don't know how to treat them together. What if I treat them separately? So, so here's, here's a, a hypothetical scenario, a thought experiment. There are two hypothetical planets, very strange ones. And on planet A, longevity is absolutely certain. You know exactly when you're going to die. Investment returns are uncertain. So the amount you need to support your retirement spending is, is also uncertain. On planet B, all investment returns are, are certain. Whether you're in bonds, equities, you know exactly what you're going to get, but you don't know how long you're going to live. So again, you've got uncertainty into how much you need. And so where is the uncertainty greater? On planet A or on planet B? Where is the financial uncertainty greater? And I did some very rough stuff. My, my colleague, Bob Colley, has done much, much, much better work uh, since then. So I always cite his stuff. But, but very roughly, the answer turned out to be uncertainty, which planet is, has greater uncertainty, depends on the age of the person involved. In what way? Well, around male age 60, which is more or less the same as female age 65, according to the longevity tables, the financial uncertainty caused by uncertain longevity is smaller than the financial uncertainty caused by being 100% in fixed income. Well, most people are very happy to be 100% in fixed income, so longevity is not an issue at age 60. Well, the two cross, never mind where they cross, it depends on the assumptions, but by the time you come to something like male age 75, female age 80, the uncertainty caused by uncertain longevity is bigger than the uncertainty caused by being 100% in equities. Well, gosh, most people at the age of 75 or 80 would not be very comfortable being 100% in equities. Well, then you better hedge that risk, uh, the, the longevity risk, because if you don't, you may be 30 or 40% in equities, but you're really 130 or 140. You have a leveraged position because your longevity uncertainty is more than 100% in equities, in essence. And, and that was a really interesting conclusion to come to. Um, that by that stage, you really ought to do that. And, and while I was thinking about, uh, about longevity and its uncertainty, the only other, I don't know if it's original, but I hadn't come across it. I asked many people to write it up and they said, I'm not interested. So I wrote it up myself. The, the, the only other um, interesting thing, I, I, uh, conclusion I came to about longevity is that if you're going to hedge this risk, what does hedging mean? It says... You, you want to hedge a risk that has a small chance of occurring, but a very serious consequence if it does. So you multiply the two together and the premium ought to be relatively small. Well, what you want to hedge longevity risk is hedge the, the right-hand end of the age distribution. So at the very least, you've got less than a 50% chance of it occurring. At the very least, it's beyond your life expectancy. Whatever your age is now, what is your future life expectancy beyond that? Ideally, you really want to do it starting at a very old age. Well, this is a deferred annuity. So I love deferred annuities, but I don't like immediate annuities. Well, gosh, if if a deferred annuity is part of an immediate annuity, and I like the deferred annuity, then the bit of the immediate annuity I don't like must be the first part. So what is the first part that causes me not to like it? And it was 
a relatively simple actuarial exercise. Maybe this is why no, no, no one did this before because it's sort of combination of investment and actuarial stuff, etc. It is actuarially equivalent to a whole life policy with limited premiums, but reversed. So the insurer, the, annu the, the annuity company, the, the insurance company that, that gives you the annuity is actually paying the premiums in the early years. And the life insured, the annuitant, is underwriting the policy. So, you, so the first part of an immediate annuity is you are underwriting a whole life policy on yourself. The insurance company is paying you premiums for every year. Why would you want to do this? Why would anyone want to do this? Now, Yari pointed out um, that if you want... This is, this is uh, Menachem Yari, yes, yes, yes. A this professor is at the Hebrew, Hebrew University. Yeah. yeah, and he pointed out that you maximize your utility by, by, by um, taking an immediate annuity, but that is if what you want is a guaranteed lifetime income. So no fluctuations, et cetera, et cetera. If that's what you want, just the guarantee forever and ever, then taking out an immediate annuity with no return of premium, all that stuff is the biggest contribution you can make to the, to the longevity pool. And so it's the biggest that you get out of it. But who would want, why would you want that? These days, most people want all kinds of other things, including potential um, risky investment returns to come out of it. And so a deferred annuity makes sense all the time as, as a hedge against longevity, which gets particularly large when you're over age 75. But an immediate annuity to me is not a terrible but, but you, you, um I, I read one of your blogs uh, about this and um, I was a little confused because, oh, okay. <laughs> because uh, as I, I, I know I've been offered um, an annuity that wouldn't begin until say age 85 or right. 87 or something. And, and so I'm not, um, I'm not paying uh, for the, or, or I'm, I'm not- uh, That's a deferred annuity. Yes. You're paying an option price rather than participation in the market. Yeah. You were saying, why those don't exist though. I, I didn't understand that. Oh, they do exist. You, you can get them. Not, not, many, not many are available. I know uh, New York Life offers them because I have one. Um, I, I know Dallas has one, is it with Metropolitan? But, but not many. Uh, um, Moshe Malevsky has one, I think. Not, <laughs> all not, the finance people who all the, are all in the, the finance people have Well, deferred, have I, I view it differently. Okay. Uh, I think my deferred annuity are my children. Oh, okay. Okay. Fair In enough. other words, Explain if that. I find myself Explain in, that. Okay, in need of income at that age, then my kids will bear that burden. <laughs> oh, but I've I've heard you say exactly the opposite, V. You you have said that your first responsibility is not to be a burden to them. That's right, and that's yeah. why I don't so, take investment risk. Yeah, yeah. So the, ch the chances of my actually needing that, even at age hundred, are very very small. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. 
All right. Now, anyway, all right. Uh, I would like you to tell us about your blog and the evolution of that. And your post, your, post that's what you're doing your now. Your post full-time job uh, career. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I retired exactly when I wanted to on, on my terms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was absolutely astonished that I was totally discombobulated when I did that. It turned yeah. out that not having that fixed daily focus threw me completely. I had no idea. And, and that, that caused me to think about a whole bunch of things uh, that eventually ended up in, in this book that I called Life Two. Um, and I, I, I hate the word retirement. I hate the, con the old fashioned concept of retirement because it, it's backward looking. It says, you know, there's not much left. That was what I used to be. So who am I today? If I, if I had a business card, what would I put on it? Former so-and-so? X this, oh, for heaven's sake. No, 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 I've got, this is long enough to be a life ahead of me. So um, I, I thought of it as life after work and a very precise friend of mine, um, I, I mix with people like this, said, you don't mean life after work. No, 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 you mean life after full-time work. Oh, okay, yeah, after full-time work, because even if I'm working part-time, it's that freedom, it's the flexibility that I'm really thinking about. So life after full, try saying life after full-time work many times. It doesn't come out very easily and I start <laughs> spitting. So what do consultants do? We create an acronym, life after full-time work, L-A-F-T-W-W-O, L-A-F-T-W-O, laugh too. And in my head, I could hear a Texan friend of mine saying life too. And, and suddenly when I said life too, everything fell into place. It's, it's a life. It's a forward looking thing, et cetera, et cetera. And if you call life one, you know, the, the adult, the normal adult life, this is a whole other life and, and, and stuff like that came, came out of it. And I, I, I had years, God bless the internet, because you can do all kinds of research. In the old days, you'd have to go into the library and hope the book you were looking for wasn't out, et cetera, et cetera. But now you can do your research on the internet. And um, I ended up saying all these things that I found and that other people have found, and I, and, and I absorb stuff from others when I read what they write and so on. And I put it together in my way. I mean, the, I, 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 I say that other people create atoms and I create out of their atoms, I create molecules they haven't seen before. But I, I, I'm not an atom person, I'm only a molecule person. So out of their atoms, the molecule I put together was to say that there seem to be three main kinds of issues. There's the financial issue, which all, 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 all the geeks in pension consulting get into, which is, will I outlive my assets? And that's, that's a big one. Um, but there are two others. One is, who am I? I mean, what is my identity now that I no longer have full-time work to do it? So who, who am I? What is, is there a, what is the main purpose in my life? Is there a purpose? Do I need a purpose? So the whole identity question. And then there's also the practical question of how am I going to spend my time? Because now I've got a whole bunch of stuff. The more you liked your job, the more it defined you, the more these issues were, were real problems. So if you're lucky, you don't have any of these three issues. But if we had education for post-retirement, these would be my first idea of the three subjects we should have. Now, in 10, 15 years time, we'll laugh at that and say how, how naive that was. But but that's that's the way I'm thinking now. And and the the practical one, how will I spend my time, has a subordinate one, which is, um, so I, 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 
until COVID forced us to spend time at home uh, with, 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 with a spouse, a partner, etc. I mean, in the old days, it used to be, oh, my God, the two of us are going to be in the same place at the same time all day long. We're not used to this. How, how do we not interfere with each other and still get on, etc.? And that led to the thought of a Venn diagram where you, 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 a couple is both a couple and two individual people. And I remember telling my son and, 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 and daughter-in-law on their wedding day that the most romantic thing they could say to each other every anniversary as they celebrated the anniversary in whatever way suited them, etc., was if they could hold each other, look into each other's eyes and say honestly to each other, all the parts of our Venn diagram are healthy. If, <laughs> oh boy, if, if Venn that, diagram. Yeah. <laughs> See, I say to my wife, every year on our anniversary, Yes, dear, you're right. <laughs> oh, well, for, for, fortunately, I, I, am, I, have, I have not had to say that on, on the anniversaries. It, it occurs a fair number of times that my wife is very nice <laughs> and occasionally will admit that she may not be wrong. Or that, well, that she, may not, she may not be, sorry, she may not, she may not be, be totally right. Anyway, so yeah, that, we hope. That, one, we hope. One, one, question, one question I have, uh, for you, I guess it relates to I, I, the identity question. Your upbringing is so unique and distinctive. Um, I might have thought you would kind of want to uh, sort of look back on, you know, what was uh, the heritage. The you mentioned Baghdad, but then you grew up in in India. Yeah, and um, it just seems like. Uh, something else that you um, that, that that would be worth documenting. At least uh, I would be interested. <laughs> well, my, my father documented it. Um, he he wrote a history of the Jews in Calcutta. Ah, uh-huh. so he, he he did that. Um, he 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 did say in the preface, as I recall, that his most trenchant and constructive critic was his son Don. <laughs> <laughs> What was his profession? He was a lawyer. Yeah. And and I would probably have ended up a lawyer too, except that he kept pushing it. He kept saying, have you thought, have you thought of what you want to be when you grow up? No, Dad, I haven't thought of it. Have you thought of being a lawyer? No, no, don't let don't let's go to that. <laughs> what was interesting was that as a pension consultant, I did a huge amount of work with lawyers and I ended up writing plan documents and and statements, et cetera, et cetera, that lawyers loved. I mean, again, it's the logic. Here's the context. These are the rules. Here's how you follow the logic. I mean, so automatically went that way. Did your parents stay in Calcutta or did they move? No, no, they moved. Um, most, Most of the community moved either to Israel or to the UK, where you know, they've been interacting with the Brits for generations, um, or to the States. And, and of the three or 4,000 that they were there, as I say, if there are even a couple of dozen left, that's, that's where they all moved. And, and my family, my particular branch of the family was the last to move to the UK. They stayed, they stayed in Calcutta the longest, but by the early 60s, they, 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 they were gone too. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and what about the say? How do I think about this kind of thing? I, yeah. I don't think of that background. I just think of the ten-year-old, and I think mm. if I had to if I had to classify myself, I would classify myself as a very lucky human being. 
simply that. Human being, because um, that's the form of animal we are. And, and, and so, and among them, about my only distinguishing characteristic is the enormous amount of luck I've had. Absolutely enormous. I mean, if, if someone had, had told the 10 year old, this is what you do, the 10 year old, first of all, would not have been able to conceive it, uh, yeah. but, but what, what it was like. But I, I, I'd, have signed, I'd have signed on the spot. Yes, I'll take it. And I would have wondered, I mean, are you the devil? Am I signing a deal with the devil? <laughs> it, it, it's been, I've been so lucky. Um, in, 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 in my health as well, uh, everything you can think of, I've been very, very lucky. Yeah, well, I, well, we're very. That's been my experience too. We're very yeah. lucky to uh, to have you and to have your enthusiasm that is uh, contagious, and I'm sure you've 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 certainly uh, stirred me up even more than I normally am stirred up. <laughs> and, uh, life too is uh, is really uh, a great uh, a great way of putting it. And uh, I, I I mean, for my part, it's it's been fantastic uh, learning about your career and knowing you. We already knew you, but perhaps not everything. And um, thank you very much for being part of this. You're welcome. You've you you've helped me put something together for newer members of the family. And, oh, and that's is, right. Yes. This is, yeah, yeah. this is fantastic. Thank you. And this actually um, helps with what I think of as my, my, my legacy. The legacy that's important to me is not a financial legacy. We've done everything for the kids that we wanted to uh, for them, and they are not expecting anything else, et cetera, et cetera, and they're happy. The, the legacy that I think is most important as far as I'm concerned, is the emotional legacy. What will people think about me after I'm gone? Will they think of me affectionately uh, and, and, and with a laugh? I mean, if, 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 if there's affection and a smile on their face, that's the closest I'm gonna get to immortality on this earth. What happens afterwards, I have no clue, no particular beliefs about it either. <laughs> they'll remember that's, you that's as, as close as I'll get. They'll remember your famous lecture about sex and actual <laughs> principles. <laughs> well, my, well wife will, my wife will certainly remember that because she was the one who said, You talking about sex? <laughs> <laughs> the right, it's a great punchline. Anytime they want. Among, among other things, it will all, I'm, I'm sure. I I, uh, I I don't want to say I'll remember you because you're 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 still well in into life too. So, uh, but uh, if I do uh, uh, last longer, I certainly will remember you in that way. <laughs> and we so, sign off. We thank you for doing this. Off. By the way, this is it's an honor for me to be to do to do this with you. It's absolutely okay. Wonderful. Well, it's it works both ways. And we, the way we sign off is Zeigesund. 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 <laughs>